Open, if you would, your Bibles to uh, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. We've been studying Mark's Gospel, and um, all this... All this way through, we've been asking again and again the question, what does this tell us about Jesus? What is Mark writing this about at every point in his gospel record about Jesus? And uh, this, our text this morning has a real potential to kind of draw us away from that singular focus because it, it starts with the disciples and what they're doing really draws our attention. So we want to really be careful to focus on the disciple, uh, on Jesus rather. What is Jesus doing in this situation? So with that reminder, let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in the 35th verse. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right, one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left, that's not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we look to it. Father, we pray that our minds and our hearts would be open simply to hear what you have for us in your word. Lord, we face challenges, Lord, and yes, we sometimes feel overwhelmed in this world, but we know that we have in you, in your word, in your spirit, the blood that was shed for us, that which we need to overcome this world, because, Father, your Son already has. We want to walk in that victory today, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, you probably have, um, of either yourself or maybe somebody you were watching in an interaction with like a, a superior, like your boss, maybe a parent-child, but one of those relationships that's clearly defined this way. And maybe it was you, in my case it was me, or somebody else. And you, you went to say something, and maybe what you were saying wasn't wrong. Maybe what you were saying wasn't like disrespectful or just out of line. But it came out that way. And the minute the words left your mouth, there was this hush in the whole room because everybody else was like, oh, you really stepped in it now. And he's like, oh, I want to, I can't, right? Pardon? Well, before we even get to that, though, um, there's two different things that can happen after that. Basically, two different things. And I've seen them both. I never forget once, I happened to do it, uh, I was a, a lowly seaman, and I was talking to a chief petty officer, which if you don't know naval ranking, that's a bad place to make that mistake. You just don't talk to a chief the way I accidentally talked to a chief in a room full of people. And I'll never forget what the man did. He kind of just went, <clears throat> gave me the look, and then he went on. 
and I had the opportunity later to apologize for him, straighten it all out. That wasn't what I was trying to say. No problem. Mistake, understood, we're good, right? I've seen it happen in other cases where that kind of a mistake is made, and like the superior suddenly finds in that a golden opportunity to like completely humiliate somebody. Just totally eviscerate the person in front of everybody. Uh, again, if you haven't seen that happen, consider yourself lucky. Um, I'm not going to tell you if I was that person or not. Um, I was. The, the, here's the point, though. For everybody else in the room, what did they learn observing that interaction? Other than you were capable of making a dumb mistake, join the human race, right? They learned more about the superior in their response than they learned about the person making the dumb mistake, right? They learned one of them was a person who they could respect. The other person was one that, though they may have power and authority and all, they really couldn't respect, right? Because they really didn't respect themselves. If that's how they had to react in that moment, they really were not a person of much character. You learn more about the person's reaction than the person that makes the initial respect. If we take that lens into this passage of scripture, it helps us to focus ourselves on the person of Christ. Because the disciples are truly messing up. They're just, they're just, they're blowing it, right? They're totally off the rails. But Jesus' response is so absolutely critical. And so with that, again, kind of as a lens, what I'd like to do is walk through the text, look at what the disciples say and do, all of them, not just the two, and then look at how Jesus reacts and see what, we conclusions, what conclusions we can draw. So first of all, uh, the text, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, which if you'll remember means they're the sons of thunder, which means they're loud. Like if you're going to make a mistake, make it loud. Right? Everybody's going to hear what these guys say. So the two sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now one of the things about Matthew, Matthew's the only other one that records this, Matthew adds that they brought their mother along. And they actually got mom to make the request, right? You, know, you get a Jewish mom on your side, anything's possible, right? right? So they, they brought mom along. Mark doesn't record that. But they have this request, and it, it's, it's really easy to see through. I mean, you know, it's just, it's obvious what these guys are trying to do. You know, they're trying to, trying to, trying to schmooze Jesus, right? They want to play him. Lord, we want you to do whatever it is we ask. We want you to write for us a blank check, right? And I've said before, you really need to pay attention to the little words. Uh, in this particular request, the word that, that they use in, in, in the text is, is hos, just hos. Hos means anything, like whatever, right? Like you go to your friend and say, hey, I've got a favor to ask of, of you. And your friend says, hos titeles, whatever you want. Now, they don't actually literally mean that, right? Not like anything. But it's an open invitation. And so in a response Plus, anything, whatever you want. It's kind of appropriate. It's kind of an open, courteous, embracing expression. Whatever you want, right? But it normally isn't in the request. I, I, wanna, I want you to do for me whatever I want, right? Again, it's, it's pretty forward. It's, it's frankly out of line. And Jesus' reaction is perfect. He says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you. Now, I've always read this with a big, a large degree of skepticism, just my initial reading of it and thinking about it. Like, you know, they come up and they say, Lord Jesus, we want you to do anything we ask of you. And Jesus kind of leans back and goes, so exactly what is it that you want? 
you know, kind of distancing himself a little bit. But as I, as I thought about it this week, and then as I beautifully saw it played out at the coffee counter here just a little while ago, when, when you know, Sophia walked up for a coffee, and, and Dr. Elwin said, what exactly do you want? Exact same words. The exact same words. Oh, of course, they were speaking in English, and this is in Greek, but it's the same words. If you walk into a coffee shop in Greece and stand at the counter, what the person says to you will be exactly what Jesus said here. What do you want? Tithelote. Exact same words, right? 2,000 years apart, same words, right? What do you want me to do for you? See, the problem with the disciples' request is not only is it presumptive, not only does it have a large measure of manipulation in it, it's also impossible to respond to. I want you to do anything for me. I would if I could, but I can't because I don't know what you want. You have to tell me specifically what you want. And so Jesus says, I believe in a warm embracing me. Well, if you want me to do anything for you, tell me what it is. If I can do it, I'd be happy to. Jesus is much more warm and embracing in his reaction than, frankly, probably I would be. Jesus' reaction moves towards embracing them and doing exactly what it is that they want. So the disciples spell it out in verse 37. Um, and with that, we understand why they were probably a little bit elusive at first. We want to sit on your right and on your left when you come in your glory. Now, it's really important to remember at this point how the disciples have, to this part in the account, been processing all that Jesus has been saying. The last time we looked at it, early in the chapter, as you recall, Jesus had explained he was going to go up to Jerusalem, and he was going to be betrayed, and he was going to be beaten, and he was going to be crucified, he was going to die. And they were not happy about that. And as, as in the passage just this last week, as Jesus is trucking towards Jerusalem, and he's actually physically moved out from within the apostolic band, he's marching up ahead of them. What, what were the two reactions of the group? They were amazed and they were terrified. Right? So a lot of this is not making any sense to him. But one thing they have figured out is that at the end of this, Jesus is going to be in some kind of a really cool, glorious situation. And when that happens, we want to make sure that we're on the right and on the left. Right? The lens they are functioning from is still this worldly kings, rulers, powers, authority, Jesus is Messiah, he's going to be king, and it's going to work like any other king would work. It's going to be bigger and better, but it's still going to be the same kind of kingdom. And that's the paradigm, if you will, that they're still working from. However it's going to look, we don't know how it's going to look, but it's going to look great. We want to be in the two prominent places of at Jesus' left and at Jesus' right. Don't know what it's going to look like, but I know I want to be in the best spot I can be, right? Again, we turn to Jesus' response. His response has three parts to it. First of all, you have no idea what you're asking. He's pointing out to them that they're still working from this totally messed up worldview of power and authority and the way rulers act and what a king is and how things... You guys have really no idea what you're asking. And the beautiful part about Jesus' response at this point is, you know, one of the things that we all wonder about, if you read the Gospels and you think about it, is how that whole dynamic of Jesus' deity and his humanity, how they mix and how that works, and what an incredible mystery that is, exactly how that's at play here. We get a little peek into that 
in, in, in this part of the, of the, of the account right here, we're, we're told about Jesus' response to this request from the disciples. The first thing he says is, you have no idea uh, what you're asking. Second question, are you able to drink this cup I drink? And third, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Well, the first is straightforward. You don't know what you're thinking. You're still working from the wrong paradigm, the wrong set of assumptions. And as long as you do that, you're going to be messed up. But then come these two questions and this insight that we get into Jesus. He says, first of all, can you drink the cup? Now, that was a readily recognized word picture in, in Jewish thinking, the cup of suffering. Right? That visual, that word picture was used a lot in the Old Testament, places like Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It's full of mixture, and he pours out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall drain it out and drink them. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the cup of this fury at my hand and pour it out on the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. It's a really clear visual, the idea of a cup full of the wrath and the anger of God. And those to whom it is given must literally consume it into their inner being. It's a horrific visual, horrific thing. And Jesus asks them, this kind of cup that I will have to drink, are you capable of drinking it? And then he moves to a different picture. He says, this baptism that I'm going to undergo, are you capable of doing that? Now, the word baptism wasn't so common as the word cup. It would have required a little more creativity of thought. But even in a place like Jeremiah 25, 15, it was there. For thus says the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury in my hand. I'm sorry, um, Isaiah 21, 4, where he says, my mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has turned into trembling for me. Well, that word, that horror overwhelms me, is actually better translated, that horror baptizes me. The prophet said the horror of what I was seeing happen around me was like a baptism unto me. I was completely immersed in the terror that I saw around me. So both of these things, both of these word pictures that Jesus used, carry with it an experience of horror and pain and torment, and Jesus said, that's what's in store for me. Do you really think that that's something you can do? And um, the disciples, uh, man, they're kind of, kind of out of line here. Hey, yeah, we can, and we will. Now, what do you fully expect to happen at this point? Jesus, is, Jesus looking ahead to Gethsemane, looking to Pilate's judgment hall, looking to Calvary, looking to the wrath of God that because of the sin of humanity, he will have to literally ingest into his very being. His suffering on our behalf was not external to him. It went into his very core. He embraced our fallenness into his very being. And the suffering that he would experience, again, in Gethsemane, Pilate's judgment hall, Calvary, would be a complete immersion into suffering. No part of his being would escape it. No part of his being. You know, one of the techniques, I've heard people that have gone through incredible trauma, they talk about there's a, a point at which in trauma that you step outside of yourself so you're not there anymore. And I have no idea if that's healthy or not, but I've heard that in numerous accounts. Jesus made no attempt to do that. He was 100% present for every bit of his suffering. He internalized it. He was fully immersed in it. That's how far he went for our pain, to pay the price for our sin, to bring us wholeness. He said, are you capable of that? 
Now, what, what's, he got, what's, the, what's the answer to that? The answer is no. The answer is no. None of us can. But in the next breath, Jesus says, you will. Now, we know from the historical record what happened. We know that James and John both experienced the cup of suffering in drastically different ways. James, of course, was the first martyr of the church. They both were martyred, but in completely different ways. James was the first to die for his faith. Sword, took off his head. That's in the book of Acts. John, on the other hand, experienced a totally different kind of martyrdom. He was the last apostle to die. And he spent the waning years of his life on the island of Patmos. Joyce and I never went to Patmos, and all the different places we went, we never went there, because every person that we ever talked to that went there said, don't go there. It's a desolate, deserted little rock that sticks up out of the Mediterranean. And if John, the, if John hadn't gone there, there'd be no human reason to ever go there. It wasn't where you want to go to spend your vacation, in other words. Isolated, desolate rock where John spent his final years. Different kind of martyrdom. So they would drink the cup. The amazing thing to me is almost in mid-sentence, Jesus changes from, look, this cup that I'm drinking, this baptism I'm going to undergo, do you actually think you can do that? To, wait a minute, you will. What just happened? What just happens in Jesus' perception of what is going on with these two disciples? See, we sometimes think, I think this is incredible, we sometimes think that there was this big, long script of everything that was going to happen down to the last detail that Jesus is reading off of, right? In his head, he has the long script of what's going to happen each and every step of the way. Well, there is one of those scripts, but Jesus didn't have it with him. This is part of that connection of his divinity and his humanity. He was having to be dependent upon the voice of the Spirit illuminating the Word of God to tell him what was going to happen next. But we catch him in a moment where it, what he's thinking, no, you guys can't possibly do this. Wait a minute, if I can kind of like give you the visual on how I understand this, and you're free to have a different opinion. This is how it reads to me. Jesus is saying to the disciples, there is no way you guys, wait a minute, actually you will. Because in his understanding, there was, there was a change. He perceived something in a moment, the moment before he didn't have. That was that, that mixture of, of, of the human and the divine and his complete reliance on the moment-by-moment -moment direction and voice of the Spirit. He didn't have a full script to read from. So he said, actually, you guys know, actually, you will. You will drink from this cup. However, this request you make, I can't answer it because it's not mine to give. It's for those to whom it's already prepared. There's that affirmation that the script exists. The plan is laid out. All of our days are numbered. And the Father knows each and every one of them. But in his humanity, Jesus didn't walk with that. He walked with a dependence on the Spirit and the voice of the Spirit and his knowledge of the Word of God. And that's pretty incredible that he was able to do that. Right? At that point, the other ten jump in on the story. And they get indignant, the text says. Um, I love, and of course it's speculative, we can't know, but I love to kind of speculate as to what exactly it was that made them indignant. Was it like, how dare they? 
How dare they ask such a manipulative question of the master? How dare, how dare they be so naive as to try to play Jesus like that? Or was their thought, ah, I didn't think of it first. Knowing what I know of human nature, it was probably more of the latter. It would have been if it had been me. Why didn't I think of that? I meant to do it, but I just hadn't gotten around to it yet. They got, they got they're going to get the good spot. I know it. And then when Jesus, you know, kind of corrects things, they go, ah, oh, uh, we just thought they're wrong, right? And, but Jesus doesn't allow that to move forward. He calls them to himself, and he begins to explain to them how, look, you're coming from this Gentile mentality, the rulers of the Gentiles, this is how they think. They want the prominent position. They want the chief place. And if they can't have the chief place, they ask for number two and number three. It's a worldview. And what have you been saying the last several weeks? We've been talking about the danger to a believer in our Christian walk of trying to take the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Scripture, and lay them over a foundation that hasn't been changed. It is absolutely essential as followers of Christ, that the first thing we do is reorder that foundation, those baseline assumptions, what life is about, who I've been called to be, what I, who I am in the kingdom of God, and to replace a worldly system, which is what? Self-promotion, self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, self-service, and any other words you want to put after the word self. That set of assumptions has to be first set aside and replaced with a kingdom value system. And that goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, a complete reversal of all those assumptions. Right? No longer promoting ourselves, but living for others, loving one another, not simply as a command, but a very basis from which we build everything. Right? Jesus calls all 12 together and says, you guys are, yeah, those two spoke up first, but you guys are still on this very worldly set of assumptions. You're still trying to build on a worldly plane and it looks just like the Gentiles, just like the unsaved, just like the pagans, right? That doesn't work. And then he says the most important thing in Mark's gospel, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He said, my very purpose for being here, my whole reason for being standing in front of you, my whole reason for putting on this this veil of human flesh, he says, is that I might serve you and that I might give my life. That's the foundation from which he operated. And he's telling him you need that kind of a foundation before you can move forward. Or you're going to make the same kind of mistakes. You're just going to use Christian terminology to justify it. And we certainly see a lot of that. The really beautiful part about this event, and I love this event, I love this passage, the really beautiful thing is it starts out with the disciples making this boneheaded request. It's, it's not clear in its thinking. It's offensive in the way it's presented. It starts out with the disciples saying this, and it ends up with Jesus making this incredible statement about himself. It's an awful lot like, if you'll think back, when Peter made that boneheaded mistake of rebuking Jesus. You remember that one where Jesus explained he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and Peter rebuked him? Bad, bad idea. And ends up with Jesus rebuking Peter in front of everybody, and Peter lost the rebuking contest, and it ends up with what? Jesus talking about what he came to do. Jesus turned Peter's mistake into this incredible declaration of who he was 
and what it was to follow him. He would say this, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, come after me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. Foundational understanding for the believer. That's the foundation we build on. But what, where did it come from? Peter's erroneous statement. That's what started the conversation. So here we have James and John saying something totally out of line. Uh, the disciples fully guilty of piling on, football illusion, right? And Jesus taking that, correcting that, and then turning into this extraordinary statement. The beauty of that is he takes even our errors and he builds the kingdom with it. I don't know how many um, preachers I've heard say things like, you know, God can't use broken vessels. God can't use flawed vessels. Man, that doesn't give him much to work with. Okay, that's about all he's got to work with if he wants to build it with us. Yes, he takes us even in our errors and he uses them. I mean, we have to do our part. We have to do our level best to replace this worldview that we were born with, where we promote ourselves, look out for ourselves, and replace it with a view that looks for his kingdom, his value, his purposes, loving one another as ourselves, right? We have to found everything we do on a comprehensive view and understanding of Scripture, dedicate ourselves to learning his word, but at the same time recognizing that we're going to mess up. We're going to make huge mistakes. All of us who are, and I'm not talking about just sinning. You know, yeah, obviously when we sin, that's a mistake, that's wrong. But we make a lot of mistakes that are just plain, I'll handle that wrong, right? As parents, we know that, right? Our best intentions leave us going, what was I thinking when I did that? What was I possibly hoping to achieve when I said that? No. But all of those mistakes we make, as long as we, as we sang this morning, lay those things at his feet and ask him to take lordship over them, they're building blocks he uses to build his kingdom, right? So that's the first thing I learned out of this is that if despite my best efforts, when I still make mistakes, he can still take that and use that to build his kingdom. And what that does is it frees me to respond in every situation I face. Because, you know, as long as we're totally convinced that I can't afford to make any mistakes, if I do, Jesus is going to be upset at me. He's going to you know, kick me out of the apostolic 12. How many times did they expect that to happen? How many times did one of the disciples say something or do something, and the first off they had was, this is my last day. He's going to tell me to pack my bags. He never did. Even of the one who betrayed him, he never kicked him out. Right? When we have that confidence that Jesus' grace and mercy is so large that he can take even our mistakes... As long as we're endeavoring to do our best, even our mistakes, he will take those and use those to build his kingdom. We have a freedom to respond, knowing that even if it's wrong, he will use it for his glory. Now, we need to be cautious. We need to show you know, judgment. We need to endeavor to hear his voice. But knowing that even if I make a mistake, he will use it for his kingdom. He will use it for his glory. I no longer have to be paralyzed by that kind of fear. And if I make a mistake, he is never going to use that to humiliate me. Now, I'm a humiliate myself. I'm embarrassed myself. There's no getting around that. But he will never do that for me. He will always act in kindness and love. He will not cut me off. And he will take even my mistakes and use them as building blocks for his kingdom. So we endeavor to learn 
and live by what Paul called the whole counsel of God. We do our best to understand the teachings of Scripture, to pursue Him through Scripture. But rather than simply creating a whole lot of lift of verses of things I should do and things I should not do, I should be striving to first and foremost understanding, establishing that basis of, of a worldview, of a philosophical system, a way of thinking that reflects his kingdom, understanding who Jesus is, what the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life means, what the kingdom of heaven actually looks like in my world, what the body of Christ is. I understand those things and I can move forward and respond to the voice of his spirit. I can be encouraged to step out and engage in building his church. Uh, we attended the, uh, the a fundraiser last night for Youth Alive, and it was stereotypical youth stuff, right? Including adults making fools of themselves, right? Why is it that we can do that? Why These clearly, people were clearly not afraid of making a mistake, right? The adults there were clearly willing to stand up and say and do things that they, you know, hope they weren't asked about later because they didn't always look so, you know, flattering. Um, why can you do that when you're dealing with kids? Because you know they have a short memory, right? But we get around adults, and we, Chris isn't buying this. You don't think Chris kids have a short memory? We'll talk about this later. Okay. <laughs> we get around our, our peers. I'll say peers, not adults. You get around peers, and you're, and you're afraid you're going to be held accountable, you know, for that dumb thing you said. One of the, and I'll, I'll end with this, um, one of the, the professors I had long, long time ago in college, it wasn't even when I was in Bible college, it was a, a secular school, um, his name was Dr. Friedrich Bergerson. Um, he had this beautiful, self-effacing sense of humor. He had been a, an intelligence agent during the Vietnam War. And one day in class to entertain us, now he was about this big, he was bald, about this big around, and he had this big furry black mustache. And um, one day to entertain us in class, he put on his intelligence glasses, which every intelligent agent wore the same kind of glasses. That's, that's, that's the military for you, right? They were black frames, all black frames, with like a little clear thing on the bottom. He has a really big nose and a big furry mustache. And um, when he put them on, the whole class started to just laugh. You know, you ever had a thing where you laugh, you don't know why? We're just, oh, we're all busting up, and we don't know why. And then somebody blurted out, he looked exactly like those fake Groucho Marx glasses, only they were his real glasses, right? And then the poor kid thought he was going to die. Teacher didn't say anything. He just laughed with us. And sometime after that, we were having a discussion in class. I'll never forget this. This is now, whew, almost 50 years ago, and um, he asked a question, and nobody would answer it, so I answered it. The answer was so wrong, it was like stupid, and the whole class laughed, and several kind of made mocking comments, and I just kind of, fine, whatever, you know. So the class went on, I loved the class, it was great, and I knew at the end of the year, I was, I was hovering in between a B and an A, like in that gray zone, which if you were like I used to be, that was terror, because I was really caught up in that stuff. And this is how old this is. You had to go to the professor to get your grade. And he would have handwritten it on the card and given it to you. Yeah, old time, right? And I went into Dr. Bergson's office, and he handed me the report card. And I looked down, and it was a solid A. And I'd, I'd done the math. That wasn't what I was supposed to get, right? I was like, borderline. I said, uh, Dr. Bergson, can you explain that to me? He said, yeah, I can. He said, remember that day in class that I asked that question, and you gave me a really dumb answer? 
I said, yeah. He said, you were the only one with the guts to answer. Right? That's why you got the A. Right? I learned from that. How, and that's like totally secular and like literally quite trivial. But it taught me a lesson about being able to take risks and being able to trust the person for whom you were taking that risk. That's small compared to what we deal with on a day-by-day -day basis and the impact our words and our actions have people and the hope that we have that we can be a participant in building his kingdom. Because that should be the baseline of everything we do, building his kingdom, doing our part. And if we step out to do something, can we make mistakes? Yeah. Can we end up a little egg on our face? Yeah. But even that, he will build his kingdom with. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And if we see just this little window, this picture in, in your word of a couple of disciples that, well, they kind of got out of line, Lord. Oh, God, they got out of line. Um, and we see ourselves in that. And we can easily recoil from that and go, man, I hope I never make a mistake like that. Well, I know I will because I have. And it's our nature because of our imperfections to make mistakes. But, Lord, it is so good to know that as long as we are acting out of an understanding that you give us in your word, as long as our heart is inclined toward you and we're, 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 our goal is to serve you, our goal is to see people drawn to you, we're trying to build your kingdom because that's why you've called us, Lord. If that's where we're at, right, Lord, if that's where we're at, you will take even our mistakes and build your kingdom through it. Even our mistakes, you'll build your church through it. You'll build up those that we love, Lord. Father, help us, I pray, to act with that kind of confidence in you. Not in ourselves, oh, but in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord this morning.